Now we're going to have our Bible reading. We're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. John's going to be looking at this later on in our service. We've been working our way through 1 Corinthians in our mornings. And we come to this chapter in which Paul talks about his ministry, how he approaches his ministry. So if you've got a pew Bible, if you've got one of the red pew Bibles, it's page 1146. Page 1146, 1 Corinthians 4. And as we read, we remember this is God's Word. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn the, from us the meaning of the saying, do not be go, go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've become kings, and, and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings, so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we will answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I am sending to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love and with a gentle spirit? Amen. We trust that God will help us 
understand his word to us today. Well, please do open God's word with me here to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 as we continue our series thinking about life together. How can we do life together? And Paul's speaking into the context of the church here at Corinth. And as we come to God's word, let us just still our hearts for a moment this morning as we seek his help. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. It is sharp, it is living, it is active. And Father, we ask now that you would open our ears, that you would open our hearts. Father, that you would deal both tenderly and powerfully with us here this morning. Father, help us to sit under your word. Help us to exalt Jesus here this morning. And we pray it in his strong name. Amen. Amen. So as we look at this passage this morning, what we want to continue to think about is culture, the culture of this church, of this place, because in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, that's what Paul's really getting at. What is the culture of Corinth? How has how the secular culture started to affect the culture within the church? And to help us think about this, I was thinking a little bit about, a little bit about our culture at home. What is the culture at our house Well, the culture in our house, some of the ways that it could be described is whenever you come in, usually you you take your shoes off. That's one of the things that happens. You take your shoes off at the back door. And whenever it comes to watching the news, we always start with ITV first, and we watch the the news there. And then if we want to double up on the Northern Irish news, if it's so exciting and interesting, then we flip over to BBC. But we, we always start with ITV. You're not allowed to eat food in your bedroom. It always has to be at the kitchen table. You can't eat on the sofa. You always got to eat it at the table. And you always have to make sure that whenever you're opening and closing doors and cupboards in in the kitchen, that you always close the doors. If you don't close the doors, you're going to get into trouble. So some of the the things that it's like if you ever visit my home, that's (laughs) some of the pointers for you. The culture of our home, something something that has been taught, something that has been bred and, and nurtured, something that has been passed on from my parents to me, part of our culture. Now, what is our culture here in this place? This morning, what I want us to see and what I I want us to aim for and what we hope for in this place is that we have gospel culture, that we have a gospel culture here in this place and that we have gospel doctrine and both of these will equate to the power of God, that gospel culture and gospel doctrine will equate to the power of God. We can see it here at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul brings a a statement to them, and he says to them that, verse 20, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. It's not just talk. It's not just lip service. It's not just going through the motions, but the kingdom of God is a kingdom of power. So here this morning, I want us all to be the real deal. I want us to be genuine Christians. And Paul here in 1 Corinthians, and especially in chapter 4, what is he trying to do? Well, he's trying to mine through all of the plaque that culture has built up and has built into this church. And he's trying to bore through the external divisions that are going on, because there's much strife, there's much division here. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to strike down, bore down into the gospel well that first transformed these people's lives at Corinth. He's trying to help them see the beauty of who Jesus is. 
The beauty of chapter 1 of Corinthians and verse 9, to see, help people see that they are called into fellowship with his son, the Lord Jesus. But the problem is with the church in Corinth that they have lost the gospel. They've lost the heart of the gospel. And I think for us, that's a great danger. Week after week, we can come along, we can go through the motions, we can sit roughly in the same area in the church, and we can go through the motions, and we can quickly lose the gospel. I came across this quote this week from William Tyndale. It'll come up on our, on our slide for us. The gospel is this. The gospel is the good, merry, glad, and joyful news that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing, dance, and leap for joy. That's the gospel, isn't it? That's the good news of Jesus. That's who Jesus is for us. But for the church at Corinth, that has long gone. The fire has dwindled. The gospel culture has been traded for a a secular culture. Gospel doctrine has been traded for, we've we've seen this in the, the previous chapters, the wisdom of the world. So again, chapter 4 and verse 20, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but of power. The power has gone. The gospel culture has gone and instead division has arrived. Because be sure of this, if we, if we as a people or any people take their, their focus off Jesus and if our focus becomes on ourself and on our own wisdom, division will soon follow. So in this place, if we take our eyes off Jesus, if we start to rely upon ourselves, if we become self-focused and rely upon our own wisdom, division will arise amongst us. And if we think a little bit more about Tyndall's quote, the good, the merry, the glad, the joyful news that makes a man's heart glad, sing and dance and leap for joy. As a church family here this morning, we've got to understand this. What does this mean for us? But it means that we have salvation from a God of judgment in the fellowship with God. And it's all done by God. Salvation is from him for us. And this is good news. So the message is life transforming. It's so radical compared to what we hear in this world that Jesus has done it all for us. So we hear this good news. We talk about this culture we think about this quote, we understand the gospel, we understand what Paul's starting to aim at here in 1 Corinthians 4. He's trying to help the people be genuine, that they would have gospel culture, gospel doctrine. That would mean the power of God, that people would be transformed and saved. So we've got all them blocks in place. But surely then, we have questions. Why is there still so much badness in our churches? Why is there so much strife? Why is there exhaustion? Why is there a lack of joy? Why is there a lack of commitment? Why is there half-heartedness? Why is there coldness? Why is there hostility? Why is there a lack of grace and love? Why, if the gospel sets the tone of our lives, is this still present? Ray Ortland writes a little book on the gospel, and in that book, he he says this. How many people are ex-Christians, and even strongly anti-Christian, 
because they went to church to hear the good news of great joy. But it was drowned out by strife and trouble. It's a challenge for us. How many people, how many people in Lurgan, how many people in in the houses around this place, how many people in our families, in our workplaces, are ex-Christians or strongly anti-Christian because they expected to hear the good news of great joy whenever they came along to church? Expected to hear about Jesus Christ, the one who saves and transforms, the one who would give them new life, who would radically change their lives, who would give them a new heart and a new desire. And whenever they came along to church, what did they find? They found someone saying, excuse me, you're sitting in my pew this morning. Do you mind moving? Or they found someone who was angry with them. Or they found division and hostility. They found a group of people that maybe dressed a little bit better, but looked exactly the same as everybody else. So what is our need here this morning? What is our need? What was the need of the people here in Corinthians chapter 4? Well, it was this. It was that they would have a a re-Christianization. That the church would be transformed again by the gospel. That Jesus would come in all of his beauty and that he would wash the church clean again. So I wonder this morning as we pause, before we go any further, as we start to think about all of this, what does it look like for us? What does it look like for us in this place? What does life together look like in Hill Street? What does a church, a family here, shaped by the gospel, look like? Whenever we see Jesus and his beauty, whenever we understand the good news of the gospel, what will it do for our relationships? What will it do for how we view church? What will it do for how much we pray and for what we pray for? How will it start to transform what we give? How much time we're willing to give? How will it transform our attitudes towards being here twice on a Sunday as we gather? How will it transform us in the way that we raise our children and how we talk? This morning, what does it mean for you to be a follower of Jesus and belong to Hill Street Presbyterian? What's the culture here? What parts do we need to identify and repent of? What parts of the culture do we need to change? What parts of the culture do we need Jesus to wash over again this morning? What parts of the culture do we need Jesus to come and to touch afresh here this morning? And here's our challenge, right? There's a guy called Victor Lustig. Victor Victor here, Victor, I don't know if you've come across Victor before. Victor was a professional con artist. We do hear this for a criminal career. So he was born in 1890 in Austria-Hungary, and he met with wealthy passengers on ocean liners. And what he would do on the ocean liners is this. He would convince the passengers of the ocean liners that he had a money printing machine. And he would encourage them to to buy this and to to, uh, uh, obtain one of them. So he would sell them one. And then Victor would hop off the ship before they would realize that it didn't work. So he was making money. He was doing well. Then his travels landed him in France. 
and he realized that the Eiffel Tower, this was in the mid-1920s, he realized that the Eiffel Tower was only meant to stand for about 20 years, and then it would be deconstructed. So he posed as, a, as a, one, of the, one of the local government officials, and he set up meetings with local scrap dealers in the city. And he put out the tender that, look, you can have all the scrap metal from the Eiffel Tower, and loads of people put in different bids, uh, and then one dealer bribed Lustig to secure the winning bid for the job, and then Lustig disappeared. And the man realized the Eiffel Tower was not for sale, and it was definitely not going to be scrapped. And then Lustig eventually made his way to America. He adopted many fake identities, and one of his highlights of his illustrious career was he persuaded Al Capone to invest in a deal that would double his money. And instead of this deal working out after a short period of time, Lustig told the mobster that the scheme hadn't worked and he returned all of his money. And Capone was so impressed by him that he gave him a huge reward and people reckoned that this was his plan all along. Well, in 1935, the police caught him in New York and he had been running an extensive counterfeiting ring. And after being convicted, Lustig was sent to Alcatraz and he died in 1947. What was this man? This man was a professional at being fake. He was a professional phony, a professional con man. And what is Paul's concern here in 1 Corinthians 4? Paul's concern is that the church will not be professional phonies or con artists or fakes, but they will be genuine, that they will walk the walk, that they will talk the talk, that they will be who they say they are that they will follow Christ in the way that he has taught them to follow them. So look at it with me. First five verses, what do we see? We see that this church, instead of following Jesus, is filled with judgment. Verses one through five highlight this. They're judging the apostles. They're judging Paul. They're looking down upon them. And then as we move into verse 6, what's verse 6? Verse 6, we see the pride of the church coming through. They're proud people. Verse 18 in this passage, we see that they are arrogant. And in verse 19, they're full of hypocrisy. So sin, like an infection, has taken over this church. Once the church that followed Jesus, that Paul spent so long with, he only spent longer with the church at Ephesus, a church that was thriving, but now it has all changed. And tucked away here in verse 17 is the drive of the first four chapters of Paul's message to the Corinthians. His first four chapters are, are reaching a climax. In verse 17, we'll see the drive of his logic. He's going to send Timothy to do what? For, in verse 17, he will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. See, what Paul is trying to say is, my way of life, my whole life, verse 17, is genuine. It's in Christ Jesus. Everything about me is in him. And it agrees with everything that I teach. Everything that I say marries up with everything that I do. Everything that I think marries up with what I feel in my heart and what I will go out and act like. It's his culture and his doctrine. It's his life and his beliefs. He's walking the walk. 
Therefore, because of verse 17, he can appeal in verse 16, imitate me. Watch, learn, do. See and repeat. Look and replicate. You see, he wraps his whole argument in, 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 and weaves it through chapter 4. Look at verse 1. I am a servant. Verse 2. Who, is to, who has been called to be faithful. Paul's saying, I live to an audience of one. I live to an audience of the Father. A faithful servant. Verse 5. The Lord will expose the motives of the heart. What a challenge that is in verse 5. So Paul goes on to say, I've applied these things to myself. I've applied the gospel to myself so that, so that you may learn, verse 6, you may learn what a biblical life looks like. Don't be puffed up with pride. Everything that you have, verse 7, is a gift from God. Verse 8, you are rich. You're like kings. So verses 14 through 17, live like me. Leave your arrogance aside in verse 18. And in verse 20, know this, that God moves in power. He transforms. It's not just words, but it's the whole of self. So as individuals, be transformed. And as a church, then grow this doctrine. Help each other. Help each other in the church. Help each other in Corinth, Paul's saying, to live this out. And so too then this morning for us. At this point, we could feel like Paul is giving the church a bothering, or if we're using Northern Irish terms, he's giving the church a good kicking, right? You better live right or else. But that would be to miss verse 14. Look at verse 14. This is key. The tone of this is key. I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children... It's like a father in a house setting the tone. It's like a mother setting the culture in a home, trying to raise a child in the right way, trying to encourage them to do the right things, to build into their life, to pour into their life. And that's what Paul's doing here for this church and for every church since. He's trying to pour in to help them to see. He makes this comparison, verse 15, about guardians and the father. In this culture, a guardian was someone who would watch over you would instruct you, would walk with you to places. And what Paul is trying to say is that, that you will have lots of people to tell you what to do. You'll have lots of people to tell you what you've done wrong, but you will have not many people in your life that will act like a father. You have not many people in your life that will take time, the effort, the care to help you grow and mature. So follow me, he says. Imitate me. Paul has, hasn't got a, a self-inflated view of himself. He knows that he's the chief amongst all sinners. That's what he says about himself. But he's able to see Christ in himself. He knows his own heart, verse 5. He knows his motives. And he knows that he's living for Jesus. Just like we thought about with the boys and girls. He's living to magnify and exalt Jesus. So as we see this change in tone, it changes the motive and it changes the response because it's Paul's hammer blow to this church. He's saying, like a father, I sit with you, I am patient with you, 
I have a deep love for you. It would be like a father perhaps trying to encourage his son to support the family football team, right? You don't follow that other team over there, son. You follow this team. And gently and slowly persuading him, showing him the way. And this morning, he's doing that to us, showing us the way as a family in this place, as individuals. Look, it's this way. It's not the way of the culture in the world. It's not, it's not sucking up all of the things of the world and its culture and what it says is important, but it's, it's following after me and being biblical. It's living as faithful servants. It's living to the audience of one. It's, it's verse 17. It's living in the way of Christ. And it's really important for us this morning to see this. We could get confused by all of this this morning and think it's just a talk about morality. But it's not. It's a talk about all of our lives, that our whole lives are shaped by this. Because don't mishear me this morning. Being a Christian isn't about being good. It's not about ticking a box on a Sunday. It's not about saying or acting or doing the right things. But instead, it's about understanding the gospel in our heads and letting that understand, uh, understanding move into our hearts so that it affects everything about us. It's realizing that Christ died for our sins. It's realizing that Jesus paid it all. It's realizing that all to him I owe Sin had left a crimson stain. But he washed it white as snow. Realizing that as a church, we bring nothing to Jesus, only our sin. So I want us this morning to push against this idea that the gospel is only for those who are not saved. That is a lie that the enemy tells us as Christians. The gospel is for each of us every day that we've got to tell it to ourselves over and over again, that we've got to let that beautiful gospel through, flow through us and wash us and cleanse us and correct us and shape us and mold us. So what does it look like for us? Well, this morning, here are some practical ways. If you're a Christian here this morning and you are a parent your children or your child need to see you as a parent taking the gospel seriously. If you as a parent aren't interested in Jesus, why would you expect your child to be interested in Jesus? If you come to church and you just sit unaffected by God in this place, why would you expect your child or children to be excited by Jesus? And if you aren't talking about the joy that Jesus brings you in your home, do you expect that your child or children will suddenly be full of joy in Jesus? And for every church member, for every Christian here in this place this morning, how do we live? How do we live our lives do we come to a Saturday evening and think, oh, it's church again. Better think about Jesus again. Does he permeate everything that we do? Does he control us? In our, not in a, in a dictatorship way, but he guides and leads us, leads our hearts, how we pray, how we spend our time. Are we, are we picking up this? Are we picking up his word and saying, Jesus, feed me again from this? 
I want to know you. I want to love you. I want to have that joy. I want to have that dancing in my heart again. Like the first time we came to know him. And then as a church, as a, as a body in this place, what, what, what way should we live? Well, what about whenever on a Sunday in this place? What about whenever someone comes in here that doesn't know Jesus? What do they see from pew to pew and from row to row here? What do they see in us? I trust that they will see this. That if someone comes into our gathering here this morning, and perhaps you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I trust that you will see that here in this place is a family of people who know that we are only sinners saved by grace, that there's nothing special about us, that we are living here as servants to Jesus, that we're overflowing with Jesus, that our hearts tell our faces about Jesus, that we're excited by him, that we're full of joy. And that doesn't mean that if you're sitting here this morning, you, you're, you're with us as a visitor. That doesn't mean that we are fake and we're just happy and at a surface level. But through the trials, through the most difficult times in life, that still Jesus is our refuge and he is our strength, that he is our joy. So that even on a Sunday morning, if we sit in this place and tears are coming down our face because of what has happened to us in the past week, because of the memories of a loved one that we have lost, or because we have lost a loved one, or because of whatever's going on in our hearts, that the joy of Jesus is still there. That because we know him as Lord and Savior, that it communicates to us so that it's real for us. I trust if you're here and you don't know Jesus, that that's what you see in this place. That's what gospel culture looks like for us. We will magnify him. We will exalt Jesus. So the gospel shapes our worship. It shapes everything about us. As we close this morning, as we bring this to an end, what's our response? I think our response is this. That we feel the weight of this passage this morning. And we run to Jesus and we say, Jesus, we are sorry. We're sorry we haven't lived gospel-shaped lives. Jesus, we're sorry that we haven't treated you the way that you should be treated. We're sorry, Jesus, that we have treated you like some religious garnish that's on the side of our lives. Jesus, help us to find in you our all in all. Jesus, help us to magnify and exalt you and enjoy you. Jesus, help us to know that hell is for people who could have enjoyed the love of God, but held back. Jesus, help us to know that in you alone we are guilty sinners, but we are saved by grace. In you we find our all in all. So we run to him. All of us, we run to him this morning. Why? Because at his feet, the sinful, the vile, the guilty, the unworthy, the poor may come. Here too, the weary spirit may bring its burden. The broken spirit may bring its sorrow. The guilty may bring its sin. And the backslider may bring their wandering. All are welcome at the feet of Jesus.
It's what Paul urges the church here at Corinth. And that's what he presses into us here this morning through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit in his word. Let us pray. Father, we praise you for 1 Corinthians 4. We praise you for the first four chapters of this book. How it makes us think about how can we live together. It exposes our hearts. How are we living? Are we just paying lip service? Are we just talking about you? Or is the power of you in this place? Father, this morning we come and we ask for your forgiveness. Father, we have been shaped by culture of this world. We've been shaped by selfish desires and not by your Son, the Lord Jesus. So we ask that you would mold us and shape us. Father, break our hearts again this morning for your Son so we may love you in this place, love one another, and we may magnify and exalt you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.